You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing, and welcome to the programme on what's turning out to be a pretty remarkable Christmas Eve. The story dominating our thoughts today is, of course, Brexit. The Christmas Eve deal, as I'm sure it will be called, is imminent. We're told the outline of all this was agreed last night, but negotiators do still seem to be haggling over the exact wording, and it seems also over the whole question of fish. Let's now talk to David Hennig, who's director of the UK Trade Policy Project at SEPA, the European Centre for International Political Economy. Dave, David, you've welcome to the program. You've held our hand through much of this uh, this process. Um, where are we now? Are we really at a point? Do you think where the deal is in sight, and by the beginning of the year, we will be moving into a world that is at least regulated, as opposed to on WTO terms? I think that that is exactly where we are. I think that there are some uh, some dotting of I's and crossing of T's going on. I think there is some final allocation of uh, different bits of, uh, of, of, of fish uh, catch, um, maybe a little bit of uh, informal legal scrubbing, but I think we are broadly there. Barring, there is always the chance of a last-minute uh, hiccup, but barring that, I think we are there. There will be a deal. We will find out, I hope, by the end of the day what is in that deal, and then we have remarkably only seven days before that needs to be implemented. Yeah, I mean, it is an extraordinary timing issue. We'll come to that in a moment. But first, I mean, the, the fact is, this is a 2,000 page agreement, and uh, we don't know what's in it. Now, you haven't seen it, I haven't seen it. But the word is that there are concessions on what seems to have been the key issue fish. Um, does it look to you as if the UK has essentially backed down or Europe? I think on fish, 
well, I think on the whole thing, as far as I can tell, there have been compromises on both sides, and it's not right to say that either side uh, wholly backed down or either side uh, had a win. On fish, uh, the EU got what it wanted for a transition period of six years and uh, not losing too much of, the fi- of, of the, uh, their catch. But after six years, the UK would then uh, re- regain much of, much of that control. So who wins in that? Well, actually, both have got something that they wanted. And from what I'm hearing, that is going to be reflected throughout the uh, throughout the text is that uh, the, the the UK will have some of the things it was asking for. The EU will have some of the things that they were asking for. It's a it's a compromise. Yeah, as these things always have to be. But I suppose the risk is that people who want a harder deal on either side are going to be disappointed. We've already heard suggestions uh, from Nigel Farage that this isn't the deal that was wanted, the man who, I suppose, began this project in a sense. Uh, is there a risk that this can be seen as, as too much giving in on the UK side? For certain, this is not full access to the single market without conditions. The UK has had to sign up to conditionality. There is definitely a risk on the UK side that this will be the thin end of the wedge, that in fact the UK will sign up to more and more EU rules in return for this access, though that's not explicitly stated. And on the EU side, there will be some who say that you've given away too much to the UK. You've given them too good a deal without having to uh, ac- them having to accept all of uh, all of EU rules. So it's a, it's a delicate balance this between both sides. And I think both sides, at the end of the day, wanted that deal to try to carry on resolving how to find that balance in the years to come. That won't, however, be quite as high profile as it has been to get to this point. And I suppose the, the other point is that on the detail, we mentioned fish, the level playing field, I remember we've talked about an awful lot, a sense that uh, when things change on one side, they must change on the other. Do you get a sense that whether it's the ratcheting that we heard about or something else, that this has been got to a point where Britain can at least feel that it has the capacity to change its rules on these sort of things? It seems like um, the, the, uh, the, the UK certainly doesn't have to follow EU rules. We're not quite sure what might have happened to uh, ratchets or divergence or penalties for divergence. That is in the detail that we haven't seen um, and how it might operate in, uh, in, in practice. In practice, the way that often this works anyway, is that once you have a trade deal, it's in both sides' interests to kind of stay in line, roughly, not to uh, to upset the other. So it might be that the, the text might not be strong, but I think that once there's a deal, it is in the UK's interest then, potentially, to stick close to the EU, or certainly that's how the EU will be seeing it. Okay, now what about the actual process of taking this forward? Because we've, we've had so many deadlines come and go, and, uh, and you and I have both uh, been, been talking up to them on very many occasions. But in this situation, we do know there is an absolute deadline, which is the 31st of December. The European Parliament already said back on Sunday that that was the last moment where it could ratify this. Possibly Parliament here will be called back, but the sheer mechanics of it, do they work? Uh, a case of best endeavours, I think. So um, just in terms of uh, ratification, the UK government can do it. It doesn't actually, strictly speaking, need Parliament. Uh, the European Council will do it. We, un- we understand provisionally without, uh, at this point, um, talking to the European Parliament. The European Parliament will then look at it in 
retrospect, if you'd like, that may mean a continuation of the negotiating process um, by, by other means, because if the European Parliament says there are bits we don't like, then they may put pressure on the, uh, on, on the Commission to try to renegotiate uh, some, some parts of this. Don't completely rule that out. So I think what we'll see is we'll see implementation insofar as something like this can be implemented at seven days' notice, which isn't completely, um, and then maybe quite a bit of haggling for a few months to come on the detailed meanings of that, but that hopefully needn't trouble um, too many of us in, in that. Those will hopefully be minor matters. Well, I note your word hopefully there, because the thought of further negotiation, I should think, must be uh, just about the worst possible thing anyone could hear at this stage. But uh, on the other hand, I suppose you also have the nature of the EU requiring uh, the consent of all members. And we have heard in the past, of course, various members objecting in various ways. Is this a moment where certain individual EU members might say, hang on a second, perhaps as a way of getting a bit of their own uh, particular concerns aired, uh, perhaps trying to manoeuvre for influence, something like that. I mean, when you've got that many members, surely that's a possibility. Yes. I think that's going to be the case over the next year, two and beyond. The nature of modern trade is complex anyway, lending itself to ongoing negotiations. Then the fact that all the EU member states have different interests with regard to the UK or indeed with broader interests, I think there is still a fair amount of haggling to, to come over this. I don't think it's set, it, set in stone. But what we'll hope, back to the word hopefully again, but I think this will provide the structure. I don't think we'll maybe have the drama that we've had with other EU trade agreements where, for example, Wallonia threatening to, uh, to veto it. I suspect we're not going to have that kind of uh, vetoing uh, threats. Instead, we may have some um, arg argument about the detail and how it should be interpreted and whether there is a need for some renegotiation of a few individual parts with the UK. And let me ask you about something that sounds rather strange. I'm ask what isn't in the bill, because a lot of people have pointed out a very substantial proportion of the UK's economy is services. Services are not addressed. Financial services, of course, being a, a key interest in the city. Uh, is this something that then just has to be pushed forward and, and talked about later? Is it something that just doesn't have to be part of an agreement anyway? Well, we're waiting to hear more about financial services equivalents, where the UK um, has, has applied for that, and the EU is uh, deciding what to uh, grant. Similarly, with data equivalents, a lot of services barriers come at member state level, and the UK will have to, to navigate those. Um, services barriers are somewhat somewhat different to, uh, to, to goods barriers. They're, they're more diverse, harder to address in a, in a trade deal. And yes, this is likely to be something where um, the UK is going to have to try to address these on, a, on an ongoing uh, basis. We are waiting to, uh, to hear, though, particularly about the financial services and data equivalents. Those are the big ticket items for a lot of uh, financial institutions. And what about perhaps a more general mood question? Because uh, I'm sure in all the time you've been covering this, certain time I have been, it's been quite painful, the language that's been used, particularly from the UK side, in terms of Europe, scoring points, uh, great distaste for Europe in various ways, certainly being the language of, of Brexit. If a deal is done, if it's underlined and signed, is this a point where bridges can be rebuilt? We can perhaps be a little nicer to Europe. Maybe Europe can be a little nicer to us. Well, trade is a contact sport, as somebody has uh, once pointed out to me. So um, uh, there's a limit to how nice we could be. But I think it does give the foundations to rebuilding the relationship, perhaps to taking some of the heat out of it. I think 
by moving off the front page, as it will, and into the, the hands of officials to, to manage the relationship, that should ena- enable it to uh, you know, lose a little bit of, uh, of, of heat and get into a more practical phase of, of cooperation. There will be other issues. I think a lot of people, a lot of politicians, are really quite bored of uh, the whole topic of UK-EU relations. So, yes, and that would be the sort of the positive way to look at that. Uh, this whole deal would be this is a framework for the future. And now it can be built upon to uh, uh, that that needs to be in place. It won't deliver everything on day one, but hopefully what is in there will allow us to start developing that. Uh, And briefly, uh, David, at the end, I mean, one of the concerns of both France and Germany and others was that it might encourage others to leave the EU if we got away reasonably cleanly. Is that still a risk, do you think? The risk has definitely reduced. I think that uh, other uh, EU member states have not felt that the UK uh, made a particularly good job of leaving. But now is the, the future is to be written. If the UK economy now does wonderfully, if we somehow find the uh, the secrets to growth, then clearly that does become a uh, a risk for the EU. So I guess we we just have to see now. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Quick mention of what else is making news in the world of politics today. Well, the virus, inevitably. A case of the new variant of COVID-19 has been detected in Northern Ireland. The health minister in Belfast, Robin Swan, said genome analysis had been carried out on a number of suspected cases and that had produced one positive result. It's the same variant detected in cases in the southeast of England in the past week. Swan said it was the confirmation he'd been expecting. He urged the public to review their plans for Christmas. And in the city, a former Citigroup trader who was dismissed for market manipulation after facing questions from the financial regulator has lost his unfair dismissal case. King Yu Chu was fired after Citigroup concluded he was spoofing the market for Slovenian government bonds. The employment judge, Bruce Gardner, said Chu's unique pattern of pricing and trading gave considerable weight to the bank's investigation, even though the Financial Conduct Authority itself had taken no action. Now, in a year in which the influence of money has been very apparent in politics and in the hunt for a vaccine, too, with the developing world seemingly rather pushed towards the back of the queue behind the wealthy world. So a good time, perhaps, then, to talk corruption. Well, joining me now is Tom Burgess, who's investigations correspondent at the Financial Times and author of the book Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. Tom, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Just in, in a nutshell, give us a sense of what your uh, investigations for this book have, have told you about the way dirty money is working in the world. Uh, well, hello. So this book's taken five years to write. Uh, it, was, it started with a, a chance meeting with a Swiss banker uh, in, in a bar in London. And um, in short, what I've found is that increasingly corruption in the political system to run the world is not... Aberration. It's not um, 
a, a, a few bad apples. Corruption is becoming the system by which power works. Even over individual countries, Russia being the most striking example, but it's also forming um, international networks, networks of kleptocracies, political systems that run through corruption. That's how they function. And I've pulled this story through four narratives of that Swiss banker I met in London, of uh, an oligarch from the former Soviet Union who's trying to build a kind of global private empire rooted in some of the um, uh, most um, striking uh, kleptocracies. Then there's um, a a lawyer from Canada, kind of an idealist, trying to stick to his principles in in this increasingly dirty world. And then there's um, a guy called Felix Sater, who is... uh, uh, all manner of things. He's uh, a stockbroker. He's um, a fraudster. He's a money launderer for for a mafia connected scam. And he's uh, he, he operates deep in the world of both Russian and Western intelligence. And he's a business partner of one Donald J. Trump. Ah, yes. Well, we've heard of him for sure. I, I mean, I suppose the, the, the natural reaction to this initially, and I've looked at it, is. Why is this any different than it ever was? Surely we all knew that money, dirty money, does fuel the way a lot of the world works, and it always was so, probably always will be so. Has it got worse? Yeah, that's a good point. I think I think a lot of the discussion and debate around this can become too Manichaean, if you like, too black and white. Um, and in truth, of course, the whole thing is grey. But what does happen is that there are periods when, uh, let's say, the collective spirit it's in the ascendancy. You might think of the Industrial Revolution, maybe, or the um, period after the Second World War. And then there are periods when um, dirty money is on the rise. By that, I mean periods when systems that are supposed to act for society at large, political systems, the, 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 the systems through which we take decisions as a society, they get hijacked for personal financial gain. Um, again, you look at Moscow, you look at uh, Beijing, how these systems work. In fact, if you look at a map of the world these days, I would say, if you're looking honestly, you're disregarding um, distractions of uh, and um, nationalist rhetoric or populist rhetoric or all these terms we use, and you look honestly at country after country and you say, is this country being run for uh, the benefit of the handful of people who rule it? Are they hijacking public contracting? Are they hijacking uh, the political system and using kind of crony capitalism to to enrich themselves and their clique? Or is this country being run broadly for the the wider interest of its population? I think you will find that what I call kleptopia is is is, is spreading fast, including into the, the the nations we think of as the great democracies. Well, I was going to pick up on that, because uh, you mentioned one Donald J. Trump earlier, and the fact is the U.S. is a democracy. We've actually seen, of course, within the last few weeks, a change uh, of rule because, through democracy. I mean, it was hard fought initially, uh, certainly, uh, but it is a change. It's a different group of people going to be in charge. Doesn't that give you hope that, in fact, uh, it isn't just dirty money that rules these things? There is such a thing as popular vote. Yeah, I think I think you can draw hope from that, but I think I think there's also a great deal that's been alarming in the last few weeks, and we shouldn't focus too narrowly on one election result to allow us to put our feet up and think that everything's fine. I'm I for one, I'm still alarmed that technocrats are winning. A, a few reasons for that: in the last couple of days, you've seen Donald Trump 
um, use the presidential pardon system to uh, to, to uh, lavish clemency on cronies of his um, convicted of crimes, uh, crimes to do with the corrupting of the of the American democracy. You've also seen, you know, you you, you wanted to make a lot of decisions to make about it. One is that there are that dirty money is blind to polit- political persuasion. It's blind to ideology. It's just probing political systems for advantage to find human frailty and greed where it can thrive. And there's plenty of that on the left of American politics as well as on the right. And you have to look at organisations like the Clinton Foundation. You have to look at the way Hunter Biden's conducted his business career and and uh, and, and and so on. And I'd also say that the uh, on, on the Trump side, what's happened is a um, a president who was, before his presidency, sustained for long years by flows uh, uh, of enormous sums of money from the great kleptocracies of the former Soviet Union. That's what sustained him. That's what I dig into. One of the big, big threads of my book is how violent, repressive kleptocracies were feeding money into Trump's business, sustaining him as a, as a failed businessman who could pretend to be a tycoon for so long. that when he reaches power, he, he, he rules like, like a kleptocrat. You know, you could put money in his pocket. He openly monetized the presidency. You could go to Mar-a-Lago. You could go to his hotel in D.C. You could put money in his pocket. Well, any dictator or executive could do that. That is astonishing that that's happened in U.S. democracy. And despite that, 70 million people just voted for him. But you could also talk about uh, potential, I suppose, in this country. We've seen uh, a senior donor to the Conservative Party uh, be elevated to the House of Lords just in the last couple of days, uh, which people might say, oh, well, that's down to to money. But at the same time, uh, we have also a, a vibrant political system, a lot of popular support that enables, if you like, these people to get into power. That system is working. In the end, it's we consent to it, don't we? I think the kleptocracy is a fair point, yeah. But 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 I don't, I, I'd say we must look at it like this as well. It's uh, it's a mistake to think because the place has elections, it can't be a kleptocracy. In fact, some of the most vibrant kleptocracies in the world have elections. The one I lived in for the longest was Nigeria. Um, uh, you know, Nigeria has an election every four years. Uh, they are they are um, vibrant, you could say, and they they they're certainly contested. But the Nigerian political system is also corrupted to the core. And the purpose of holding political power in Nigeria is to enrich you, you, yourself, yourself and your, your backers. I think um, there's a danger in the in, in the UK that we're, of complacency. Um, the Conservative Party, you, you mentioned uh, elevation of donors to the to the Lords, and um, uh, you know, look at look at Leverdev's uh, um, elevation recently to the Lords. There are other major donors to both parties, but particularly at the moment of the Conservative Party, whose um, fortunes, their origins of their fortunes are squarely um, in the in the, uh, the kleptocracies of the former Soviet yeah. Union, especially Russia. Can you imagine if this was the other round? Can you imagine if um, uh, millionaires and billionaires from the UK with connections to MI6 were known to be the top donors to Vladimir Putin? That, that, that would be regarded well, in Russia as absolutely astonishing and, and would be resisted. Well, Tom, let me. We've put out a lot out there. Let me ask you what the answer is. Maybe we don't have one, but what is the way around this? And regulation doesn't seem to cut it, does it? Well, I agree. The regulation doesn't seem to be working. I think that a lot of the financial regulation is captive to the industry it's supposed to regulate. 
Uh, I, I'd say that enforcement is, is, is the key, re- reviving civic institutions more broadly, but particularly taking care of the rule of law. The rule of law is the most precious thing we have. It's what keeps us all as safe as, and as free as we are. And, and that is what's ultimately being eroded, both from within and without. So the fact that um, oligarchs from the kleptocracies around the world come and they fight their political battles in, in the on Chancery Lane in the UK civil courts in that great Gothic building and near the River Thames. That, that court after court in there every day is being used to fight the battles of the kleptocrats, and they are doing so using incredibly expensive City of London lawyers. The criminal um, uh, law enforcement agencies in the West are increasingly being manipulated to fight these battles. I'd say, to, to take your point, to fight back, it has to be to give funding and legal tools massively beefed up to the law enforcement agencies to allow them to uphold the rule. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.